Let me, let me just pray as we just think about uh, our message here this morning. Lord, I, I think of how Psalm 118, verse 9, as uh, Darren mentioned, we, we went over in prayer meeting how, how very appropriate for this day, sovereign timing, that it is better to trust in the Lord than to trust in princes. And um, Lord, I just think about this uh, election, and it's better to trust in you than to trust in any candidate uh, that is ever going to be elected. And so, Father, we would pray your mercy upon us as a nation, um, as uh, you will elect your man, uh, God, for sure, is that uh, you, you are the one who's sovereign over the affairs of life, and you raise up rulers, and you take down rulers. And uh, we just plead for your, your mercy to us, um, God, because just there's a direction of our country that will we'll go one way or the other, depending upon the elections. And so I just would pray we would trust in you to do what's best for your kingdom. And uh, Lord, also, I just would pray for those who are filled with fear and anxiety in these times, God, that they would realize it's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in princes, uh, God, because... That's where our, our ultimate hope is. And so, Lord, I, I pray that as we cast our anxieties upon you and as we cast our burdens upon you, uh, Father, may we um, really look to you in, in every way. Um, God, realizing you're the source of our strength and you're the source of our hope. God, not, not in politics or not in um, uh, whatever policies, votes, orders. God, you have us in your hands and in that we can rejoice and trust. Father, I also pray for my message this morning. I I pray you would uh, bring revival to Rock Valley Bible Church as we look at revival today. God, let us taste a little bit of what took place in the early church. Uh, God, so be merciful to us. Help us. Stir us afresh with your spirits in our lives. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was appropriate, you know, Ryan, one of the things you do excellently is just choose songs um, just many times along what we're, what we're looking at, what we're doing, and um, you had us sing as the very last song here, Just As I Am, which is often, when I think about that song, I think about a, an altar call, and it goes on and on and on and on and on and on, and the pastor just pleading and begging that people come forward, and so there's some bad commentations to that, and yet it's so perfect a song, because that's how we come to Jesus, just as I am, O Lamb of God, I come and I come to you. Uh, and so it's a, it's a great song, and it, it sort of leads into what we're talking about. We're going to talk about revival today. Um, and, and I want to take you to the 1940s, to Los Angeles. There was this uh, a group of businessmen who gathered together in, in this group, in this committee they had. It's called Christ for Los Angeles. And, and they really had a heart in the 1940s to reach the city of Los Angeles with evangelistic uh, campaigns. And uh, they would have various different speakers come in and various different times. And, and, and the highlight in 1940s was 1945 when they sponsored a citywide campaign, did a big blitz to advertise that you would come and we're going to pack out the Hollywood Bowl, which is this amphitheater in, uh, in Hollywood, Los Angeles. I had no idea what the Hollywood Bowl was. Yvonne knew what it was, like this big amphitheater. And they packed in 18,000 people in there in uh, 1945, and 1,000 of them denoted that they made some sort of decision for Christ. 
I mean, just a group of businessmen coming together, 1945, and that's a wonderful success that they had. Um, but as successful as any um, yearly evangelistic campaign that they had was, nothing surpassed what happened in 1949 when Billy Graham came to Los Angeles. And we see here this advertisement that advertises for a, a mammoth tent crusade. Uh, they, they set up this mammoth tent right there, as it says, on Washington and Hill Streets. It was planned for a, a three-week uh, event every night at 7.30 at night. And Sundays, they had it at 3 o'clock and at 8.30. Just, just carried on 21 straight days when Billy Graham came uh, for these, these three weeks. And, and Billy Graham, even beforehand, just sensed Los Angeles, right, where the, where the culture comes from, where it's, where it's coming. He just knew the, the great potential and success that Los Angeles would, had, would have, but he had some concerns as well. He wrote in his journal in February uh, in 1949, he wrote seven months before the campaign, he says, I stand upon the brink of absolute fear and trembling when I think we might come to Los Angeles with only a small number of churches. And, uh, and I think at that time, maybe 100 churches there were there, and he wanted to be bigger. And he's just saying, if we only have 100 churches, how small it will be. He's just praying big, thinking big and praying big. He was concerned about the budget, that it was too small, and uh, just, just longing for God to make an impact, praying you know, six months ahead of time. And so come September in 1949, they erected this huge tent at the corner of Washington and Hill. And uh, there you see the size of it. Uh, it, it was called the Canvas Cathedral, is what they, they called it. It, it, it fits several thousand people. I don't know the exact number, but four, five, six thousand people uh, fit in there. They average some 3,000 people uh, every night, and on Sundays it swelled to about 4,000 people. And in each meeting they had, had great gospel music. Um, they had t- people give their testimonies, and then Billy Graham with his fire would preach uh, the scriptures and would preach Jesus. And the campaign planned for three weeks. And uh, it was going to end on October 16th. But as that Sunday approached, they sensed more because more and more people were coming, more and more people were interested in hearing about Jesus. And uh, what happened at all these uh, meetings that they had had, they, they'd run before because Billy Graham had run, I think this was his, uh, I can't remember, it's his eighth, I think. That, that he'd had. He started in 1947 with these campaigns, and uh, here was 1949, his last, his, his eighth one. He actually ended up doing over 140, I think, uh, throughout his time. But, but they always, right, when they had people every night, the, those who came were refreshed, and they'd go home, and they'd invite their, kid, their friends and their neighbors, they'd come, and it always crescendo. It was happening here in Los Angeles. It was really crescendoing, and so they decided to, to extend it another week, and uh, what happened was, during this first week in which they extended it, uh, William Randolph Hearst heard about the events. Uh, a, a key friend of his was converted at one of the events and shared his testimony. And uh, William Randolph Hearst, if you don't know him, he was a, a prominent uh, owner of newspapers. And uh, when he heard about it, he just said two words. He said, Puff Graham. So that to his editor's staff. And so, in the, the next day, news of the campaign ran front page in the Los Angeles newspapers. Also, other Hearst newspapers all across the nation. Um, in New York and Chicago and Detroit and San Francisco. And just front page right there talking about the, the campaign. And the next day, Billy Graham and his members, as they came to the meeting, where it was just very strange. They're met this time by scores 
of uh, newspaper writers and reporters and photographers to the tent. And Graham said this. He said, they had taken almost no notice of the meeting up until now. And very little had appeared in the papers. But now all had changed as the news got out and it spread far and wide. And this is how Billy DeGram describes it. He says, the newspaper coverage was just the beginning of the phenomenon. As more and more extraordinary conversion stories caught the public's attention, the meetings continued night after night, drawing overflow crowds. They even had to build an extension upon that tent in order to get more people in. He said, something was happening that all the media coverage in the world could not explain, and neither could I. God may have used Mr. Hurst to promote the meetings, as Ruth said, his wife said, but the credit belonged solely to God. And all I know was that before it was over, we're on a journey from which there'd be no looking back. And in 1949, Billy Graham points to that crusade as his watershed moment of his ministry. Because as, as that, as that uh, crusade was so well known and had such great success, and as it poured out into the world, it really launched Billy Graham's ministry worldwide. And he conducted over 400 crusades in his uh, life in 150 countries, 185 countries all over the world. And the campaign in Los Angeles actually was extended from the three weeks to eight weeks of every night. Billy Graham um, gave 65 full-length sermons in those weeks, hundreds of evangelistic talks to small groups, talks on the radio, interviews to writers. He preached total attendance-wise to 350,000 people, and they recorded that 3,000 people were converted to Jesus, which is a great segue to our text because as we think about our text, we're going to see how many people converted? 3,000, if you remember Acts chapter 2 and verse 31. So you can open your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 37 uh, through 41 this morning. Um, We're going to pick it up at verse 37, really right in the middle of the story Uh, These words are going to come in response to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, which was in response to the Holy Spirit being poured upon his disciples and began speaking in tongues, that is, other languages they didn't know, never studied. They began speaking these foreign languages. And uh, we've been looking at this amazing sermon these past few weeks. It's filled with Scripture, uh, filled with power, filled with Jesus, filled with passion. And the response is incredible. Look there in verse 41. We see that day there were added about 3,000 souls, the same number that in the eight weeks of meetings in Los Angeles in 1949 held. And there were many similarities between what took place in Jerusalem and what took place in Los Angeles. The obvious blessing of God with so many people being so interested in spiritual things. I mean, can you imagine that today in our culture with thousands of people all going to this tent meeting every night for eight weeks in a row? Can you imagine that? It's like, I don't think so. I mean, there's a reason today we don't have tent meetings like that. Because nobody would come. Oh, you might get some church people, but it's just a different age with our society and, and where, he is, where it is. And, and God's people, I think, would have been super encouraged by all, this, all these crowds coming because crowds create excitement and enthusiasm. That's why some of the sports leagues have fallen flat this year. Um, because without a crowd, there's not quite the excitement, not quite the enthusiasm as there are. Um, and, and I think that in, in the time of Pentecost, I think there was a similar excitement and, and encouragement and enthusiasm as 3,000 people came into the church. And, and, and the common term for this enthusiasm is revival. 
vivos, like to live, and re, right, to, to relive, to reborn us, right, to, to help us again. And, and that, that refers to conversion of people, that, that refers to uh, Christians being super encouraged. And revival always happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon a church in an extraordinary type of way to really stir in the hearts of people who, who didn't know Jesus to come to Jesus. Just as revival breaks out and and giving believers this fresh experience of the power of God in their lives that that leads to confession of sin and greater passion to pursue the Lord in word and in prayer. And these sort of things happened in 1949 in Los Angeles and they happened on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. That's why my message this morning is entitled Revival in the Early Church. Now, there are some similarities, but there are also some, some vast differences between what took place in Pentecost and what took place in 1949. At Pentecost, there were only 120 followers of Jesus that we know of. Maybe there's some more, but kind of the group, the core, was about 120 of them. Whereas in Los Angeles, even the time when Billy Graham came, there were certainly hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of followers of Christ. So adding 3,000 to the church in those days... Not a lot. But they're so excited to have 30. But imagine a church of 120, right? A church of our size in one day having 3,000 people. A lot different. Like way overwhelming. It was a big deal on the day of Pentecost. And this wasn't spread over eight weeks. This was spread over one day. Eight, 3,000 people. And I think also about how clearly it was of the Lord in Acts chapter 2. In Los Angeles... There were years of laying the groundwork. Uh, I mean, this, this committee, right, uh, Christ for Los Angeles, had had, had yearly meetings, like, like leading up to it. And I just know that in ministry, right, you, you do things yearly. The reputation gets around, right? We've had vacation Bible school here before, and, and right, we have it, and then next year there's a little bit more because people come and they bring their friends, and there's a little bit more, there's a little bit more, and there's a little bit more, and it just gets, grows, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And different events are like that. They just grow and grow and grow, and that's what you had in Los Angeles in 1949, you had these years, the previous years, where people, oh yeah, I remember going to that, that was a great time, and so they're more inclined just to go. For the more massive coordination of other churches, lots of people praying for this event, large budget, a tent erected for everyone to gather, but not so in Jerusalem. Uh, this was the first time anything like this had ever happened. This wasn't like the culmination of, of a decade-long yearly meetings the people had little to no category for what was taking place. There was no planning on the human level. Uh, certainly on the divine level, there was absolute planning. But no planning on the human level. No meetings, no budget, and no tent. It was a sovereign display of God's power. And that really is true revival. When the work is clearly the Lord's work. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 2. We see the Lord's work. We see, we see true revival coming. You know, Andrew Murray, uh, no, no, Ian Murray wrote a great book called Revival and Revivalism. Revival is when there's a work that's clearly of God, that takes somewhat by surprise, that, that God is really doing His work. Revivalism is when you say, we're going to have revival meetings in September, and we're going to meet this much, and this is what's going to happen. It's like, that's totally man. And some, some churches can have these revival meetings all set up, boom, 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 boom. We're going to have revival that time. That's not genuine biblical revival. We're talking about here something unexplained and, and surprising when it, when it just comes. And, and they had no idea what was coming. 
When this chapter begins in Acts chapter 2 with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples are just in the room waiting, praying, and they begin to speak in tongues. And this miracle gives Peter an opportunity to stand and speak because people were confused about hearing these, these, these languages, right, in their home tongue, that these Galileans shouldn't be able to know those languages. And, and Peter tells them what was taking place. He says it was the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, which prophesied of the day when the Holy Spirit would come, be poured out upon God's people, and, and men and women, slave and free, would all be preaching and prophesying. And these days signaled the time of revival, And there was a promise, verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He explained Joel 2. And then after that, he transitioned to Jesus to talk all about Jesus, his life and his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation. And Peter focused mostly upon the resurrection, which most people present didn't understand. They knew about his life because they'd seen Jesus. They, they knew of people that had been healed. Maybe they themselves had been healed of some distress as Jesus went about doing miracles and healing everybody. I heard one person say that disease was banished from Israel at the time of Jesus because he healed everybody. And, and they knew about his death because many of these same people who were there at Pentecost were there at uh, the previous uh, celebration feast for Passover, and they saw him on the cross, dying. They were in the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. But as he was buried, they were going home. And they didn't know much about the resurrection. And so Peter focuses most of his attention upon the resurrection. They'd heard about it. There were rumors about it, but there was uncertainty in their minds. And so Peter opens up Psalm 16, which required a resurrection of the Messiah because the psalm teaches how Messiah wouldn't decay in the grave. And then he mentions Psalm 110 about Jesus, the Messiah, being sit up and, and lofty, exalted, right? Raised from the dead and then exalted and ascended into the heavens. And then he concludes in verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And there's the crowd. We crucified our Messiah who was raised and is now exalted. And that's where we pick up our text. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were caught to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he, con- he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And here's verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what I want to do this morning is just work through our passage, just bringing up some characteristics of revival that we see in the early church. And we see in revival here in the early church is always present in any- every revival that the Lord Um, does and works uh, upon us they're always present in true salvation the first is this conviction of sin we see this in verse 37 now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do those in jerusalem just came to realization of what they had done they had killed their messiah the one who'd come to save them and to give them life they put that one to death. 
In fact, listen to how Peter describes it in in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says that you delivered over and denied the Holy and Righteous One. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Those verses are very equivalent to verse 36. You crucified the one who God made Lord and Christ. In Acts 3, right, the message is this. Life was offered to you and you chose death. The offer of life was given to you and you killed him. But of course, God raised him from the dead because he couldn't stay in the grave. And those in Jerusalem, as it says in verse 37, were cut to the heart. That's that's a good translation. Other, Other straight translations of that, the New American Standard says they were pierced to the heart. The same ones that pierced the Messiah were then pierced in their own hearts. What a great picture. The King James says they were pricked in their heart. It's a good translation, right? Something in their heart's happening. It begins to beat, right? It begins to like, like just tear in their stomach. They begin to breathe heavy. They begin to sweat because they knew that they had done wrong. Something deep inside was paining them. And I love other translations which are more interpretive to try to help fill out these words. The, the, uh, the Net Bible says that they were acutely distressed. It's a good idea. That's what it means, right? Pierced in the heart, acutely distressed. They were in panic. The contemporary English version says that they were very upset. The Good News translation says that they were deeply troubled. All these things, right? Kind of give you the picture there about they knew what they had done wrong. Their hand was in the cookie jar and they were guilty but far more guilty than just stealing a cookie. They'd crucified the very one who'd give them life. That's why the Holman Christian Standard Bible says they came under deep conviction. They saw their sin and were mourning over what they had done, and they were experiencing, as my point says today, conviction of sin. This deep conviction. I think in many ways they were fulfilling the words of Zechariah 12.10. Remember that? When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Zechariah 12.10 is prophesying of the time when, when they would look upon me whom they have pierced, who they have destroyed, who they have killed. And when they do that, they will mourn as one mourns for an only son. You know, nothing touches the heart of people than one of their children dies. Especially if it's their only child. I think about Pharaoh, right? When, when Pharaoh had his, his oldest son die, that was, that was the very thing. He said, Just get those people, get those Israelites out. He was in such mourning and such trauma. That's what's taking place here in verse 37. Only it wasn't an only child. It was the Messiah. There was deep mourning and sorrow. And that's why they cried out, Brothers, what shall we do? Their conviction of sin led to a a cry for help. It's always what takes place when a sinner is saved from their sin. There comes this conviction, a a weight upon the heart when, when people realize what it is that they have done. Like, oh no. I'm a sinner inside of a, a holy God. And then there's this, this cry for help. 
this plea perhaps for mercy and grace. You ever come to that spot in your life? When you've come to see the end of yourself, when you've come to see your sin in full display, knowing you've no hope to stand before God? What should we do? There's conviction that comes upon you. And if you claim to be a Christian, you need to come to this place. Or you need to have come to this place. And maybe you come to this place often, which I think is the way, the genuine life of a Christian, always understanding that our, our sin is great before the Lord. As Paul said in Romans chapter 7, a wretched man that I am, continually seeing our sin before God. In fact, I've heard it said before that the closer you get to the cross, the closer you get to Jesus, the larger and larger it gets. I mean, so think about the cross here. I see it bigger than you guys see it because you guys are far away. But I'm close, I see it big, and as I get closer and closer, what happens? The cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So imagine my eyes just right up here. How big the cross is. And the more you walk with Christ, the closer you are with Him, the bigger you see the cross because the bigger you see your own sin. That's what a Christian's life is. It's one of constant repentance. Here it is November 1st. What an appropriate illustration here to use. On Reformation Day was yesterday. Well, the day when Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door of Wittenberg, October 31st, 1517. His first theses of his 95 was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Just a breaking of heart that just says, God, I am nothing. I, I need you. And that's what these people were experiencing here. And that's what happens during revival. It takes place in mass. I mean, it's one thing for one person to come to that spot, but it's another thing when a a whole congregation, a whole generation of people are in mass, they come to that point. That's revival. When you see all the crowds coming to the same realization at the same time. In fact, did you notice the plural in verse 37? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. See, when, when the whole people heard it, like all of them were cut to the heart. It wasn't like one person in there was broke to the heart. It's not like one centurion sitting there or, or one guy was, was broke to the heart or one pharisaical leader. No, no, this was they and them. And, and, and they, they cried out to the rest of the apostles. They said, brothers, what shall we do? I'm not saying, what shall I do? What shall we do? We corporately, there's revival when it's, when it's all together, when crowds come under the conviction of sin. Now, this cry for help can come in, in different forms. It can come a, like a direct cry, like it does here. What shall we do? Sometimes this cry is, is really just a, a, a matter of the heart. When Isaiah saw the holiness of God and saw his sin, he said, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm ruined. I'm lost. When Peter saw his sin, he said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Luke 5, verse 8. When the tax collector in Jesus' parable came under conviction, he wouldn't even look up, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Those are all the same. Those are the cries that come out of a conviction of sin. And and that's what they're they're saying here. what, What shall we do? Sometimes there aren't even words. Like the sinful woman in the presence of, of Jesus simply wept at his feet, wiping her tears off her feet with her hair. doesn't even have to come with words. But there's somehow this cry for help. 
And however this conviction of sin manifests itself, it does come with a promise. Verse 21. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's calling upon God. Just saying, God, God, save me. Be merciful to me. Now, in this instance, it was calling upon people, brothers, apostles. What, what shall we do? Right, just looking for some help about what it is that we should do vertically before the Lord. And Peter said to them in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's my second point, repentance and baptism. We see this in uh, the early church revival. What should we do? Two things. He says, repent and be baptized. The repentance is the act of turning from sin in sorrow. It, it, it includes confession. It includes a resolution to turn from that sin. It includes a, a crying out to God for mercy and help. Uh, a deep down repentance is sort of a, a change of mind about one's life. It, it signifies this life-changing decision that, that people make, uh, changing the direction rather than living for oneself, now to living for God, putting God on the throne of your life. People have said it that way. And the repentant one, I love this, will hate the sin that they once loved and will love the God they once hated. Totally different. Baptism is an expression of that repentance. It's the outward sign of an inward reality. It symbolizes cleansing from sin as a, as a sinner is immersed in the water, just bathed, if you will, by the, the overflowing, immersive cleansing of God. It's a symbolism of life, of coming out of the water, demonstrates newness of life that comes with conversion. And that's exactly how Paul uses the symbolization, symbolization is that right? The symbolism of uh, baptism to salvation. He says we were, Romans 6 verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There was buried with him in baptism under the water, dead, coming out cleansed, refreshed, so as to walk in newness of life. That's what baptism is. Now there are many who take this very verse right here and say baptism is necessary for salvation. And they say, look there, what does it say? What should I do? Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? Two things, repentance and baptism, both necessary for forgiveness and both necessary for the gift of the Holy Spirit, both necessary for salvation. And I agree. If you take this verse alone, it would appear to say that. However, I just encourage you, don't just stand on one verse in your theology. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And when you let Scripture interpret Scripture, you'll find, even primarily in the book of Acts, that baptism isn't necessary for salvation. In fact, in Acts chapter 3, you find Peter preaching to much the same type of crowd after Pentecost. So we got 3,000 people saved in verse 41, and then he heals this beggar, which we'll see in a few weeks, and then he, he preaches this sermon, and, and the crux of it comes down in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And then he comes, here's what you need to do. What shall we do? He says, repent, verse 19, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. No mention of baptism there. If baptism was necessary, then, then those first people, okay, they can be baptized, they can be saved, but he doesn't tell them to be baptized here. In Acts chapter 3, just a, a little bit over, 
Peter can't be accused of giving a half message because he didn't mention baptism because we see in Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, we see thousands more saved at his preaching. Well, they can't be saved if they didn't hear about baptism. I think they probably were baptized because you see in Acts that people believed and were baptized quickly. But they're being saved because they repented and believed. Look, Look at how Acts chapter 4 verse 4 says, Many of those who had heard the word believed... And the men came to about 5,000, right? And, and belief is implied in repentance. It's the whole thing. I'm trusting in God. I'm believing in God. I'm turning from my sin. I'm turning from this way of thought. I'm turning to that way of thought. I'm believing and trusting God. That's what salvation is. It's not of works. It's not of baptism. There's, there's no mention there of baptism. Furthermore, if you survey the rest of Acts, you don't see baptism necessary for salvation. One of the clearest cases comes in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas were in prison for preaching the gospel. There's an earthquake and prisoners were, were, being, were, were free in, in some regards, but they didn't escape. And that, that caused the, the jailer who was about to kill himself to say, wait a minute, they're not escaping. I, I won't be killed for having the, the prisoners escape. And then he asked them plainly, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You remember what Paul and Silas said? They said what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. For you and all your household. Everyone, there it is. Believe. He didn't tell this Philippian jailer to be baptized. Now he was. You look a little bit later. Everyone who believed in his house was baptized. He was later. But he said, believe. That's always how it is in the book of Acts. That's how it is in Paul's epistles. And Peter, it's interesting, when he says baptism now saves you, 1 Peter 3, 21 he says, baptism saves you. Not the removal of the dirt from your flesh. It's not about that. But he says, an appeal to God for a clean conscience. That's the thing that's saving you. Your, your appeal to God. You're crying out to God. You're trusting in God. That's the saving thing in the experience of baptism that saves you. So why did Peter say, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? Well, because in his mind, these two things are always together. In the book of Acts, you see baptisms all over the place. There's lots. But... It's always faith and then baptism. Faith first, baptism is a sign after that to publicly identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. You see it clearly in Acts chapter 8. Philip's preaching in the Ethiopian eunuch down south in Gaza, desert place, barren place. He preaches to him about the scriptures. He preaches to him about Jesus and who he is. And then the, the eunuch sees some water. And he says in Acts chapter 8 verse 36, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip says, in a verse that's not in some manuscripts, but certainly is there to clarify the theology of the apostles, says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The Ethiopian eunuch said, I do, and he was baptized. Can I be baptized? If you believe, you can. I believe. Absolutely. That's how it is. Faith first and then baptism. In the book of Acts, we see people baptized immediately after coming to faith. In Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, right right after Peter said this, in fact, I can't wait to preach Acts chapter 10 because Peter only began to preach is what he said later in Acts chapter 11 describing the event. He said, I just began to preach and the Holy Spirit came and like interrupted my message halfway and all these people believed and they trusted and they repented and, and I was in that situation. Here's the last thing he said though. He said to him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Believes. And the Holy Spirit came right at that moment before he could ever get to talk about baptism. And, and they're believing they'll be saved. And then Peter says, well, the, they got the Holy Spirit, right? And even if you look in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, the whole key is that you repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit even before they were baptized. So the faith was a thing that gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and then uh, they said, Peter said, well, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people, receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? They believed they received the Holy Spirit. Can we baptize them? And all the, the Jewish people that came with him were like, uh, I guess so. So they baptized these Gentiles, these Gentiles, um, much to the chagrin of many of the Jews. What? You went and you preached to the Gentiles? You baptized them? Like, how is it? And he explains about what happened. And he explains in Acts 11, verse 18, that God granted them repentance that leads to life. God is the one who worked in their heart, changed them, turned them, granted them repentance. They came to faith. He said, I'm just responding. They believed and they repented because God's the one who gave them repentance. And then I baptized them. Sadly, in churches today, baptism doesn't follow so quickly after salvation. And uh, I think there are several reasons for this. You just got to think, why? Why doesn't it take place um, very much? And, and I, I think the biggest reason is because we have generations after generations of established churches. Kids grow up surrounded by the scriptures. They often hear about Jesus from their youth. And, and those who don't outwardly rebel, there's no big point of change in their life. Though it's Luther, there's constant repentance in their life. You know, when they, when they turn from the sins of the world, there's been protected. So there's not these big sins. And so it's kind of like, okay, well, when, when they believed. And, and I, I tell the story often about Carissa. When she was three years old, I asked her if she believed in Jesus. And she's just a little girl. And she says, I believe a little. That's all she knew. She knew a little. But at some point, coming to faith a lot, trusting, then was, was baptized there. And so baptism gets delayed till they're old enough to fully embrace the gospel, which I think is right. But that delay with children often leads to the delay of others. But in pagan nations, interesting, it's not the case. In my missionary travels to Nepal and India, we have Christianity breaking through into a Hindu culture where you don't have generations of Christians. You see people believing and being baptized right away as a result of their faith, which I think is, is good because they're making a clean break of their past. They're proclaiming their allegiance to Jesus rather than to Buddha or Shiva or Vishnu or any other of the millions of Hindu gods that they follow after. We can learn from these nations. And I just, I, I need to ask you, have you been baptized? Because uh, I know of a handful of people in the congregation who haven't been baptized. Um, talk to me, we're going to have a baptism service. At some point, coronavirus, or kind of like my sabbatical coronavirus kind of messed some things up with that. And I think baptism time has been delayed, right? They, they're coming to, they came to faith and it's been delayed a little bit. And so when we can all celebrate that together, I'm sure we'll do that. So if you want to be baptized... Come and talk with me, and we will work that through in obedience, because this is repentance and baptism was in the early church. Well, let's look thirdly here at the a promise for all, verse 39. The promise is stated clearly in verse 39. He says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise, I think, goes back to the gift of verse 38. Right When you repent and you're baptized for the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins, what it says when you repent and you're believing and you're trusting, then what happens? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit will be given upon you when you repent and believe. And, and the Holy Spirit coming is a sign of salvation. Isn't that the Holy, how the Holy Spirit works? Uh, Titus 3.5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing, regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit comes, changes us, and transforms us 
into his image. The, the Holy Spirit's active in sanctification, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I missed several there, but the idea is that the Spirit works in our lives for sanctification. That's the gift of the Spirit, and it comes to everyone who believes. And, and Peter's saying here, the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off. So I think we just take this verse and we can expand it out. Generational change is promised in the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit comes to those in Peter's day who would repent. And it came to their children who would repent. And it came to their grandchildren who would repent and believe. And it came to all those who are far, far off. And I think what Peter's doing here is even speaking better than he knew. Those who are far off, he's talking about Gentiles which then they need to work through about this different racial group in, in Acts chapter 10. But those who are far off can come near to Jesus Christ with the promise of the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon them. Or you might put it like Joel 2 says, and it shall come to pass, verse 21, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is available to all who call upon the Lord. But catch this. And if you eyes open to this, it's all over Acts. But salvation only comes to those who God calls. Look again at verse 39. The, the promise is for you and for your children all who are far off. What's the promise? If you repent, you'll give the Holy Spirit. If you, convent, you'll be, if you repent, you'll be converted. And anyone, anyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. Who's going to do that? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And this, by the way, is why we have hope in the gospel. Not because we preach such a great message not because we live such godly lives that people are going to be attracted to us. Not because we have the truth all exactly right, but because God is the one who's working in the lives of people. God is the one who convicts of sin. God grants repentance that leads to life, Acts 11 and verse 18. God is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. Because here it is. If we're left to unbelieving people to turn, you know how many of those would turn on their own? Zero. Because they're dead in their sins. So Paul says in Ephesians 2. And dead people don't turn from their sins. God needs to make them alive, Ephesians 2. God needs to act. And act He will. He will call many to Himself. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, know this, that God has called you to Himself. God has broken into your, your life. Granted sight. That, that God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. That they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4. But God comes in and opens our eyes so we see the glories of Jesus. And, and then we see our sin and we cry out to Him. He gives us faith to believe, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And that's our hope. And by the way, this is why we pray for people to be saved. Isn't it? Right? We pray that God would go and interrupt into their lives and make them alive and cause them to see their sin. Bring them to conviction. Bring them to repentance so that they come. And that's revival when that happens, when God is doing it. And there are plenty of man-made methods that people do and get people to make a decision and they fall away. But when God converts someone, they don't fall away because they're genuine and true and will last forever. So we pray. Well, the last point, and I'll be quick about this as we then transition to the Lord's Supper. I just call it separation from the world. Um, this is part of sanctification, I think, like in verse 40. And with many other words... Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And this sermon here in, uh, in, in, in Acts 2 wasn't the only sermon that he preached to people. 
we get the idea here that after the day of Pentecost, after these people said, what shall we do to be saved? It's he's, many other words. And so just like Billy Graham, he, he said he preached all these sermons publicly, 65 sermons in 72 meetings overall over those eight weeks. Um, he said he had many small group evangelistic encounters, lots of interviews, lots of talking, lots of phone calls. Um, I read in his biography how he was like up in the middle of the night, sometimes people calling them to, to their rooms of where they were. And, and he was in the late hours of night talking with people. He said also at the end of the meetings that he and his wife wouldn't leave until everyone who had come forward had been talked to. Many, many other words. And I'm sure that's what, what Peter was doing as well. Not only just preaching the crowds, but maybe they had small groups, maybe families, maybe he had individual people just constantly telling them, and here's the message, right? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And I think about how there could not be a more applicable message. Our generation, by the way, is a crooked generation. I mean, I think that the elections have spelled this out. Name-calling, accusations, back and forth, candidates from both sides. It's a wicked nation. We have, we have sins with a racial conflict. We have a crooked generation. We have corruptness. We're just, we're just wicked and evil. And, and you, hear, you know, just even with sins of people. The internet just helps expose blah of people. Just they look and they research and people love it. We are a crooked generation every bit as they were. In fact, I heard someone comment this week just in a, in a really pessimistic way about the election and just seeing things bad on both sides. And someone said this, you know, I'm really bummed about Tuesday. I heard that someone predict that someone's going to win the election on Tuesday. Kind of just the perspective about just bad, just this bad out there. See, the world is, is not our home. We need to be, as Peter says, separated from this world. We need to be saved from this generation. You go the way of the generation, and you won't be saved. You'll be lost. Just think about the way and the thrust of where our generation is going. And if you just ride that wave, you'll ride that wave on the wide way to destruction, as Jesus said. But we need to save ourselves from that wide generation to go to the narrow path, as Jesus says the gate through the cross of Christ. And there were many that day who did. Again, as the church increased 25-fold, those who received His word, verse 41, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So those who received the word of Peter that said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So all these people, 3,000 people, that day were added to their souls. So the, the picture here is that he preached to a lot of people in a crowd, had a lot of follow-up meetings, and that baptismal tanks were busy all day as 3,000 people worked through those lakes or ponds or wherever they, they were being baptized. And I just, I just say this in transition-wise before we get to the Lord's Supper. I say how appropriate that all this happened on Pentecost. Why? You remember what Pentecost is? What did they celebrate Pentecost? Anybody? The first fruits. You know what is first fruits? These are like the first of our harvest. Right? We, we plant the seeds out there, and these are the first things that come. Like the barley harvest. The, the first thing that come up. And so likewise here. These are the first believers that come into the church. 
I just love how the Holy Spirit, how God planned it all. And I'm sure back in Leviticus, in Exodus, when God was planning the first fruits, thinking about, (laughs) I can't wait for that day when Jesus dies resurrected and Peter preaches on Pentecost and I get to bring the first fruits into my church, which I am building. Isn't that neat? But there is the the first fruits of what we, we look forward to of what they looked forward to, and we can look back and just rejoice and say these are the, the first ones who've come. And I think of any day to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is, it is this sort of day when we think about just what God is doing in saving people and bringing about revival in, in the early church. 